see you. And I, I hope that you're just loving being back in church. And I mean, this has um, been <laughs> refreshing for my soul to say, and I know for many people here. And again, if this is your first time with us, man, we're just thrilled that you're here, and we hope you'll come back and worship with us some more. Um, we were down for about four and a half months. I know many of you remember that. When I say down, we just weren't meeting. It was online only. The church never shut down. But uh, I hope you saw by Taylor's announcement video there that things are starting to ramp back up again. There's a lot of things that were just really going full steam ahead before COVID hit that we had to press pause on. But, but now we are like, Celebrate Recovery is going again. Our women's Bible study, our men's breakfasts are coming back together. Um, youth group started up. And um, we have a junior high youth group that meets on Wednesday nights. And our high school youth group meets on Sunday night. That's all firing up again. There's a singles event coming. And I just want to encourage you guys to start re-engaging in the life of the church. And we're so just thrilled that, that God has, has blessed us and continue to prosper our church during um, even uh, this crazy thing of this virus. And I'm confident, and I'm so confident, I believe this with all my heart, this stuff that we're going through, it will one day be in our rearview mirror, okay? There's going to come a day where we're not even going to think about masks. I know that's what I believe. There's going to come a day where social distance is going to be, oh, I remember when we had to do that. That day is coming. We're not quite there yet, but I appreciate all of you so much for just, I'm telling you, everybody in this church has had just a wonderful attitude and it's kind of been like, I just want to be back in church with, with my people, and, if, and that's okay, I'll just do it. And so you've worked with us, and I just want to praise you a little bit. It's been a blessing to this pastor's heart that you guys have been so, let's, whatever, let's just get back together. It's, it's been awesome. Hey, I want to mention one other thing, that if you're looking at the app, um, once in a while, our app sometimes has this little glitch that's supposed to, when you open the notes, it's supposed to open up to the current day. But it's sometime, this week it's been opening up to the previous week. So if you open up your app and it's actually the wrong notes, at the top left of that page, there's a little icon that says more notes. You just click it if you're on the wrong date and it will take you to a page that has all the right ones. Just click on the right date and you'll find it. So that happened to me this week. And if it's happening to me, I know it's happening to others. So anyway, I just want to give it a little heads up. We are starting a new series today called Old School, and I know you've seen the new bumper video, you've seen some of our advertisements on social media, and I feel like I need to explain a little bit about what old school means so you'll know, you know where we're going over the next few weeks and you'll understand you know, what is meant by that. When, when somebody says the word old school, what, what do they mean by that? What are they, what are they trying to portray? What, what's old school? Because depending on how you define this word and how you use it, it can mean several different things. But to me, when I say old school, I mean something that's kind of old-fashioned, but I mean it in a really positive way. That's old school. It's like, it's, yeah, it's a little old-fashioned, but, but uh, it, it's, it's a good way. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way of saying old-fashioned. There's some pride behind that phrase. You ever heard somebody say old school? They don't mean it negative, do they? They say it with pride. They're, yeah, I'm old school. So like if, um, if, uh, if uh, you say I'm old school, it's because you're saying, I like it how it used to be done. And I'm going to do it the way it used to be done because I believe that's a better way than how it's being done now. That's, that's old school. If, uh, if uh, you're a student and your teacher shows up on class tomorrow morning and she goes, okay, class, put your laptops away and get out a piece of paper and a pencil. And the class is going to go, what? what's going on? Paper, pencil. And they're going to say, oh, looks like our teacher's going old school on us today. That's what that old school. Do you guys enjoy those uh, TV shows about restoring? 
restoring classic cars and motorcycles and things like that. I love those things. There's so many of those shows now, I can't keep up with it. But back in the day, years ago, I kind of got turned on to this kind of TV show. And the show that did that for me was a show you might be familiar with. It was one of the first ones, American Chopper. Do you remember that show? I mean, they, these father and son, Paul Sr. and Paul Jr., they built custom motorcycles as American choppers. And, and you know, they, they spent most of their time arguing, if you watch the show, and a little bit of time building motorcycles. But if you look at the contrast between father and son, you have Paul Jr. And if you ever watched the show, Paul Jr. was all about building the newest, latest, greatest, most innovative motorcycles out there. He loved new technology. He loved to experiment with new design. He loved to do things that nobody's ever seen before and that would wow people. And was like, hey, like wow, Paul Jr., he might be considered new school. But then there was his dad, Paul Sr., and Paul Sr. made no bones about it. Just about every episode, he'd say, nope, I like the old school choppers. You know, those bikes that are tried and true, always going to be loved, classic design. You can't make them better. They're always going to be in style. They, test, they stand the test of time. You, you shouldn't try to fix what isn't broken. Old school. Old school is not a negative reference at all. Old school just simply means back to the basics, tried and true, proven, weather any storm, stands the test of time, classic old school. If there has ever been a time in America that the church needed to be that, it's right now. Old school. And here's why. Here's why I say that. It's because there is a progressive version of Christianity that is sweeping across our nation. And I don't know if you know that or not. There's this progressive view. And let me just tell you what this is because it's not what we practice here at New Life. But it has taken the world by storm and I believe leading many Christians down the wrong path. This version of Christianity is desperately trying to harmonize Christian life and societal norms together. And I'm friends, I'm telling you, you can't do that. You can't harmonize what the Bible proclaims and where the world believes they don't go together, but it's an effort to do just that. This version, or what I would say, this expression of Christianity, they claim the Bible to be true and full of truth, but it is not the only truth out there. They would say there are lots of places that you can find truth in this world that is, that is equal to the Bible. This, this version of Christianity believes that... Uh, that, that following Jesus is one path to eternity. And what that means is that uh, you can pursue God through, the, through being a Muslim, or you can follow Hinduism or Buddhism or any other world religion, and ultimately we're all worshiping the same God, and we're all eventually going to get to the same place. This progressive version of Christianity preaches tolerance and God's blessings on every lifestyle imaginable. LGBTQIA, any other letter that might get added to that evolving, evolving abbreviation in the future. And what that means is that they would preach a message that you go live your life 
And you identify and you express yourself in whatever way that you want to because God is cool with it. And the guys that wrote the Bible all those years ago and and laid down all these strict standards of God, well, they had no idea what being a Christian was going to be like in the 21st century. And there's no way that what they intended back then is still true today. It's a version of Christianity that believes God is shaping and that God is refining every generation, which means that those back in Bible times in the Middle East, they couldn't possibly, possibly think that uh, how they followed the Lord and how we should follow the Lord today would be the same. And just because they called it sin, you know, a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago, doesn't mean that we should still call that same thing or that same lifestyle sin because every new generation within every new culture has a way of expressing their faith in the Lord in new ways. And friends, I don't know if I even have the ability or the vocabulary to adequately express just how dangerous this false version of Christianity is. This play by your own rules, pick and choose what you feel is right, buffet style to following Jesus. Alicia Childers sums it up really well, I believe, when she says there are five clear signs that this version of progressive Christianity is in your church. She says, visit any church in America, and if you see any one of these five signs, it's a church that's probably headed down that road. She said, the first sign is this, there is a lowered view of the Bible. You know, as we put the Bible way up here, it's God's standard, it's God's word. But then if you bring that down and you level it with other versions of truth, you level it with other popular ideas, and and, and they said, that is a clear-cut sign. That, that there's a progressiveness that is entering your church. And friends, it's in a lot of churches. Some of you are here today because you used to be a part of a church that has brought their view of the Bible down to here and you just can't, it just doesn't harmonize with your Christian life anymore. She said the second sign is this, feelings are emphasized over facts. In other words, you take the truth of the scripture and you start to hear things like this. Well, this is what the Bible says, but you know how I feel about it. I feel this way. And we elevate feelings over the truth of the word of God and and you start to have this progressiveness come in when feelings are emphasized over facts. She said the third thing is essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Do you know that's happening across our land right now? Essential Christian doctrines are being reinterpreted through a modern lens today. She said the fourth thing, historical terms are redefined. We're using the same words, but we're putting new definitions to them. She said the fifth thing is this, the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. In other words, in our pulpits across America... There's less and less preaching about man's biggest problem, which is sin, and man's greatest answer to it, which is Jesus. And that message is being replaced by this social justice message. And friends, I want you to hear my heart. I believe the church should be on the front lines when it comes to social justice issues. We should be. The church should be leading the charge. And they are all throughout the the New Testament. It's very important. But friends, I'm telling you, man's greatest 
problem, man's biggest problem in this world is sin, and man's greatest need is Jesus. And there is no real social justice that can ever take place outside of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, because he is the answer to our world's biggest problems today. And so we can't replace the, 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 the conversation that our biggest problem is sin, our greatest need is Jesus. And when we do that, I think you'll see social things change. I am somebody who pays a lot of attention to this. And I hope that you sleep well at night because you can go to bed saying, Pastor Joe's keeping his eye on this stuff. I, I hope you have that feeling because I pay attention to this. I read up on it. I'm listening quite a bit. I, I stay up on the conversation because I am concerned that the false doctrines and the false teachers that we read about so much in the New Testament are still alive and well today. And they're trying to disrupt and take the church down a wrong path. And I see it almost everywhere, it feels like at times. Just the other day, a, a Christian church pastor, somebody that pastors the church just like New Life, friend of mine, I don't know him real well, but he is a friend. We have a lot of the same friends, and, and we, we definitely are friends on Facebook. My mouth hit the floor when I saw that he shared a sermon on his own Facebook page by a pastor who I would consider is the poster child for this false version of Christianity. And I, just, I was just shocked that, she, that he would share her sermon and praise it and endorse it. And so there's a lot of things that I see in this world that I just let roll off my back. You know, there, you have to. There's just too much. You got to, you know, but for whatever, this just stuck in my gut. And I let it sit on me for about 24 hours. I said, okay, I got to talk to this guy. And so we connected privately, which I'm just a little side note here. It's not a halo on my head. But if you've got good intentions and you really try to work something out, that doesn't happen on a public news feed, my friends. You just got to do the biblical way. You got to go to your brother, your sister. You got to go to somebody privately if you ever want to get anything done. Now, if your intentions are to embarrass somebody, Facebook's your path. But if you really want to try to get to the bottom of something, you do that privately, one on one. So that's what we tried. That's what we did. And uh, my fear was this: that my pastor friend just, in a sense, ignorantly shared that sermon, and he probably didn't know what this pastor really stood for. So I wanted to make sure, and the concern that I had was, you know, if you share this, and I'm not saying you believe this, but if you share this, somebody in your church may go, oh, that meant something to me too. Let me further investigate other things that this pastor says, and maybe start following. And you know, I, tell, I couldn't sleep at night if I inadvertently put you down the path of somebody who was false, and it took you down a wrong road. That would weigh on me so heavily, I'm not sure I'd know what to do with it. It's one of those burdens I feel. And I wasn't sure if he felt the same burden. You see, the pastor whose sermon that he shared also champions a pro-abortion stance. Now we sit here and we go, like, how can a Christian support, read the Bible and come out and support that? But when you, when you lower your view of the Bible, you can harmonize it with just about anything. And that's what's going on. But it goes farther than that. She promotes openly in her writings and her sermons. She's got hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. She promotes every kind of lifestyle that the Bible names as something that's an abomination to God. She promotes it. How does that happen? She openly brags about her own history of 
promiscuity and encourages women in her church to explore the full range of their sexuality before they get married. And she teaches that if you save yourself for your future spouse, then that's a crazy thing to do. Why would you do that? God never tells us to do that. Why would you do that? This is going to kind of blow your mind. And, and you're probably not going to believe me because for some of you, this is brand new information. I didn't know there were pastors out there that believe this stuff. This is going to blow your mind. Not long ago, she started a national campaign encouraging women to mail her their purity rings. Do, do you know what that is? They were very popular when I was in high school. And it's that purity ring that just says, hey, I'm gonna, if a woman would wear this ring, I'm going to protect myself and save myself for my future husband. And this ring is going to be a daily reminder that God has somebody out in store for me. And, and I'm going to guard myself till God introduce, and, and I'm going to save myself from marriage. So what she does, she says, ladies, I want you to mail me your purity rings as a form of rejection of everything you were taught growing up in church about sexual purity. You can see why I was concerned when my pastor friend shared her sermon, right? But you see, how do you arrive to those conclusions? It's when you lower your view of the Bible and where feelings become more important than truth and you reinterpret biblical doctrines to mean different things and you try to harmonize the Bible's message with societal norms and you try to level the playing field between all sources of quote-unquote truth. That's how you can preach such a distortion of the gospel message. And I want you to hear me here, friends. Here at New Life, we reject this false version of following Jesus that is weakening churches and creating confusion in the ranks of Christian lives. We reject that. That's why I say if there was ever a time in America that the church needed to be old school, Back to the basics, tried and true, weather all the storms, stands the test of time, classic and proven, old school, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians. It is right now. So in this series that we're starting today called Old School, what we're going to do is for the next couple of weeks, we are actually going to journey back into the Old Testament for a time when there were these just what I would call incredible examples of the kind of old school faith that I believe needs to be exhibited in today's Christian lives. These old school truths, these, these faiths, these stands that were taken, that boy, if we would pay attention and we would implement the same kind of conviction into our own lives today, it would do us a, 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 just a spring of good in our own lives. I'm talking about those who did not follow the crowd. I'm talking about those who stood for biblical truth. I'm talking about those who didn't mind being the odd man or the odd woman out. I'm talking about those who stood up when the rest of the world bowed down. I'm talking about those who did not cave in to peer pressure. I'm talking about those who did allow God's word to be the standard for their lives. I'm talking about those who took seriously the call to love God and to love other people. I'm talking about those that look to God when the rest of the world seemed to be looking only at themselves. I'm talking about those who trusted the Lord in every season, not just for a short while. I'm talking about those who went to their knees when the world decided to go off and get crazy. Old school, timeless faith compared to those today who are trying to redefine what following Jesus is really all about. Now, to help us do that over the next couple of weeks, like I said, we're going to go back to the Old Testament to a time 
when everything in the nation of Israel was falling apart. Now let me answer one quick question because this is important. Who were the Israelites? Who were the Israelites in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, God created a special nation of people called the Israelites. They would be a nation that God would use as an example to the rest of the world what godly people were supposed to be like. They would be a nation that had a God and, and, and they loved him and this God loved their people and they honored him and they obeyed him and ultimately it was going to set the stage for the rest of the world to also come and follow the Lord. That was supposed to be an example. But what happened? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, what happened instead? The Israelites, they continually struggled to keep their eyes on the Lord. And in fact, the whole Old Testament is tracking this journey. They loved idols. They loved what the other nations around them had. They, 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 they were continually seduced by worldliness. And you can follow this. It, it's this nation started in Egypt when God raised them up, but they were in slavery. And then God rescued them from Egypt and they spent time wandering in the wilderness. And finally, God gave them their own promised land and they were able to establish their own temple. They became a mighty people. But eventually, because of their idol worship and falling away from God, they were eventually demolished and they divided themselves up. And then finally, where we catch up in the story for this series, the nation of Israel is this small little remnant of people known as Judah who are living around the area of Jerusalem, and that's all that's left of God's holy people. And even that group wasn't following the Lord. And where we catch up in the story, God is going to send them off into captivity for 70 years. The Babylonian, the pagan nation, comes in and conquers them. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And they haul off all this remnant of God's people into exile. And it's called the Babylonian captivity. And there's 70 years there where they are captives. And there's about another 70 years after that where they try to come home and reestablish themselves. There's about a 140 to 150 years here that we're going to be spending time with because in the midst of this time, there were still some of these Israelites who I would say they were old school. The world got messed up, but they stuck to their guns. They, they stuck to their guns. They, they stood for the Lord and they were put in some incredibly difficult situations, but they did not lose their convictions and God bless them. It's these stories. Some of them are going to be familiar to you. Other names that we're going to talk about may be less familiar to you, but these are people who had these old school convictions about God and stood the test of time. And there's something about that that needs to be implemented in our lives today that will inspire us and show us where God would have us to go. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to briefly start there today at Daniel chapter 1. And if you've been around church for a while, Daniel is the name of somebody that's a very well-known person in the Bible. In fact, of all the people in the Bible, I don't know if you're going to find a finer man, really, other than Jesus, than Daniel, a guy that never broke a guy that always stood for what was right. And we're going to start with him. So Daniel is somebody with uncompromising integrity and convictions. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, here's what happens. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, which Judah, again, same as Israel, into his hand 
along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, this is insult to injury here. Not only did the Israelites get conquered, but all the treasures of God's temple, they destroyed it and they hauled off all the treasures. And Nebuchadnezzar put all those treasures into a temple to his own God. Insult to injury is what this is. Verse 3, then the king ordered Asphanaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified, and able to serve. I can relate, can't you? Just seeing if you're paying attention. Basically, they took the best and brightest and said, Let's not put them into slavery. Let's put them into the king's service. They've got something to add. Daniel's a part of this group. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table that they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah or Israel. Hananiah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, <coughs> Abednego. And for those of you that grew up in Sunday school, this is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's who we're talking about here. These four guys, most likely teenagers, when their world got flipped upside down and they got hauled 900 miles away to Babylon. Training to serve a new king. Essentially, what we just read is that by the end of this three-year education, they're all going to have master's degrees in Babylonian culture and language. And the whole purpose of it is now you're going to serve a new king. But what we see from the very beginning here in Daniel chapter 1 is Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had a strong sense of right and wrong. And they may have been just one of a handful of people that were hauled off into exile that still had this, what we might call, a strong moral compass about them. There were still aspects of their faith in God that they would not let go of. And even though they were pulled from their homeland and put into a godless land, they're like, we are not going to change. There's something so strong about this. And so they entered into this exclusive training program but he doesn't shift his allegiance. Now look at verse 8, because here's, here's where you know, this is all going to be put to the test. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Well, he would have my head because of you. Do you understand what's going on? Daniel's like saying, I'm not going to eat that. This food that you're putting in front of me, I'm not going to eat it. And he says, it's going to defile me. And the guy in charge of Daniel's like, well, I respect that. But listen, I'm in charge of you. And if you don't eat it and you go down, it's not your head on the platter. It's mine. And this is what happened. Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief, priest, chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Please test your servants for 10 days. Daniel's like, I got an idea. Please test us for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. So this is a real test. 
for me. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what they see. So he agreed to this test, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were to, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. This really comes down to this. They had to make a choice. And what was this choice? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had to choose. Do I keep my integrity? Do I stick to my convictions, what I believe God would have me to do? Or do I just keep my mouth shut? Do I go along? Do I just go with the flow? Do I just, you know, and they could have made excuses. You know, uh, the whole world changed. Everything's different now. Just go with it. That was the choice. And Daniel and his friends, what they did, they made this choice. We're going to stick to our guns and we're going to do what we believe is right in God's eyes. And he uses this word, I'm choosing not to defile myself. Do you know what that makes Daniel? That makes him a man of conviction. And that, my friends, is foundational for old school faith that stands the test of time and trials. In fact, if you're taking notes today, why don't you write this down? Old school faith is anchored in conviction. Old school faith is anchored in conviction. I don't believe that we will ever become what God wants us to be without conviction. Without conviction, we're going to chase every good idea that feels good in the moment. Without conviction that is grounded in godly truths, it will be the world that directs our path, not God. Honestly, I don't know what the big issue is with, with, with the food, to be honest with you. Um, Daniel doesn't outline it for us. It's not like he sat down with the, with the chief official and said, here's point A, point B, point C of why I have trouble with this food and why. Uh, if he did, we don't read about it in Scripture. We can speculate. Uh, whatever it was, he says... I'm not going to defile myself. That word defile that we translate into English, that word literally means polluted or dirty. He said, I'm not going to make myself polluted or dirty. That's how he felt about it. And as you further extrapolate that word out and what it means, it holds this idea that defilement is creating a canyon from where you are to where you want to be. So he's saying, it's like, if I eat that, it's going to defile me. It's going to make me polluted. It's going to make me dirty. It's going to create a canyon between two places. And that kind of sounds a lot like sin, doesn't it? It sounds like he's describing how we talk about sin. Defilement, polluted, dirty, creating a, a, a canyon between us and God. And in fact, if Jesus had not died on the cross, what we celebrate with communion and, and risen to life, there would still be this canyon between us and God today. What was it about this food? Well, it probably had something to do with the fact that the food coming to Daniel was not clean food. And if you know much about the Old Testament, the Israelites stuck to a strict dietary code. And most likely, Daniel brought that dietary code with him. He said, this is the way God wants me to eat, and this food isn't that, and so I can't do it. 
it could have had something to do too with the fact that oftentimes in these pagan cultures, uh, they would sacrifice their food to all these false gods and then they would serve it up and distribute it. And maybe Daniel's like, I'm not eating that. That was, that was dedicated to a false god and I can't put that in my mouth. It could have been that too. It could have just been the simple fact that Daniel's like, if I eat the king's food, it's like I'm aligning myself with him and I'm not aligning myself with him. We don't know. Maybe it was a combination of all three of those reasons. But Daniel chose not to defile himself because it would create a separation between he and God. And because he's a man of convictions, he knew where his lines were, and he wasn't going to step outside of that. And it makes me ask the question, are there anything in your life right now that is causing you to be defiled? I mean, is there anything right now with things that you do or where you go or, or what you involve yourself in, even things that might be considered gray areas or, well, I don't know if that's this, or, but is there anything right now that's causing this feeling of defilement? It's like saying, every time I engage, I am pushing God a little farther away. And if there is, and if there's something that's like uh, this involvement that I have, it's, it's like creating this canyon. It's this widening canyon between me and God. There's something that needs to be done about that, my friends. But you look at this story and, and you look at this great food that I'm sure it was wonderful food, but it would have been certainly more nourishing if you were going to compare it to water and vegetables. It's a fight I have all the time. Is that donut better than water and vegetables? Yes, it is. I'm kidding. But he risked it all to take this stand. Because in that culture, you know what? If Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to eat the king's food, you know how easy it would have been at a snap of a finger to just end their lives? What do they care? But they stood their ground. They stuck to their God-given convictions. And what we read next is God blessed them. And friends, when you draw your lines and we become men and women with this old school faith that we are going to ground our convictions, we're going to line up where the Lord wants us to be, the Lord's going to bless you too. Look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And David could understand visions and dreams, or me, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. This was something that God gave him after he took his stand. He said, here's my line. It's a godly line, and I'm not going to cross it. And God blessed him because of it. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if we would have ever heard of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had they not refused this really good food and wine from the king. I don't think we would have. But God blessed their stand. In verse 18, it says, At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into a service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the chanters in his whole kingdom. Friends, when you anchor your faith in godly convictions and when you obey the Lord, he will bless you. Blessings will follow. He will position you where he wants you to be. He will leverage you and your influence for the things that he desires. 
I don't know about you, but I kind of get the impression that when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were hauled into this new kind of service, they already knew what their decisions would be. I can't prove that. But it seems like it was automatic for them. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, well, we need to sleep on this. No, no, no. It, it just, it just kind of seems like they knew what their choices were. Those lines were firmly established. And I pray that every single person at New Life, what we'll do is we will adopt this kind of old school. Lord, I just want to be what you want me to be. I'm going to ground all my decisions in, the, in, the, in convictions into your word. I'm going to set up these boundaries around my life. I'm not going to cross them. And I pray that those things become automatic. Because aren't we constantly rubbing up against these lines? Isn't the temptation always to step over? Because stepping over is the easy thing to do. Stepping over doesn't get challenged. Stepping over feels good. Stepping outside of those lines is usually the path of least resistance. But I pray that when we bump up against these lines, it becomes so natural and automatic and say, no, that's, that's not what we're going to go. Old school faith is anchored in conviction. And friends, I want to tell you as we wrap up here today, there are fewer things that will speak louder about your relationship with God than your convictions. You want to know what the world sees often? It's when you choose not to cross those lines. That's when the world wonders, well, what's different about you? There are few things in your life that will speak more about where your walk with Jesus is than your convictions that are anchored in God's word. And friends, that's old school. That's old school faith. Can I pray for you? Dear gracious God, I just thank you, Lord, for your word today. I thank you for telling us about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lord, I thank you for their incredible courage. And Lord, may we have the same courage. Lord, I thank you for their example of boldness. May we have the same boldness. Lord, I thank you for their reasonable alternatives, their kindness. Lord, we don't have to be rude or, or insincere or mean as we stand upon these convictions, but Lord, you'll provide us the words. Lord, may they become automatic to us. Lord, help us to go old school. Lord, help this entire New Life family to be people that are grounded in your convictions, Lord, that our, your convictions are our convictions. And Lord, would you bring more and more people through these doors into our lives that are hungry for a standard of truth and righteousness. And Lord, would you put words in our mouth and opportunity in our path to reach more and more people with the good news of Jesus who desperately need to know that their biggest problem is sin the answer to it is Jesus. In fact, he's the answer to everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.